Hi everyone. Well, there's been a tremendous upheaval in Israeli politics this past week or so, as I'm sure you know. After 12 years in office, Benjamin Netanyahu lost the prime ministership to his former friend and ally, Naftali Bennett, in a historically unprecedented election cycle. So what happened? And now what? Why is this such a big deal? It's the kind of election in which not much changes, yet it might become the election that ultimately changes everything. For there is now an opportunity for a refreshing of Israeli politics. New people, new ideas, new thinking, new narratives. It's an exciting development and proof of the strength of Israel's democracy, despite the dark road it took to get here. Yet, looming over all this is the still formidable presence of Benjamin Netanyahu and his right-wing allies. If you were fired up by Israel's planned evictions of the Palestinians in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of Jerusalem, well, another major eviction looms, for Netanyahu has refused to leave the Prime Minister's official residence on Balfour Street, about a mile and a half from Sheikh Jarrah. Turns out there's no law forcing him out, since Israel never anticipated that a prime minister who lost a democratic election would stay in the official residence. First, the government announced that it would cut off all funding for cleaning and other staff services, trying to smoke the Netanyahu's out. Then it announced it would file a petition before the Supreme Court to force their removal. Now the new prime minister, Naftali Bennett, has given Netanyahu and his wife two weeks to vacate. The press is calling it the Siege of Balfour Street. It's not like Netanyahu doesn't have his own private, multi-million dollar home overlooking the ocean. It's that he thinks it's only a matter of days or a few weeks until he can bring down the government and return to the Prime Minister's chair. So why clean out the closet? We can't say that Netanyahu himself won't be back, but it does seem as though the Netanyahu era is drawing to a close. It was marked by exceptional achievements and extreme divisions. So let's take a look at what happened that got us to this moment and what it all means. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Israel has held four elections in the last two years, all with the same goal oust Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He's been in charge since 2009, and before that was also Prime Minister from 1996 to 1999. It's the longest reign of any Prime Minister in Israeli history. Okay, quick primer on Israeli politics. Israel is a parliamentary democracy in which multiple political parties make up the Knesset, Israel's parliament. In Israel, you don't vote directly for a candidate. You vote for a party, the number of votes a party gets determines how many seats it gets in the Knesset. The total number of seats is 120, which means that 61 seats, 61 votes, equals a majority. Each party picks its slate of candidates. Their number one is the person who would serve as prime minister if the party wins the most votes. So if a party wins, say, 10 seats, then the top 10 people on their list would serve in the Knesset, with the 11th person out of luck. Now here's the catch. No single party ever wins those 61 seats. What happens instead is that one party wins the most votes in the election and therefore gets the most seats. Their top candidate becomes the prime minister delegate and then gets a few weeks to build that coalition of at least 61 Knesset seats by partnering with other parties. When they do, they now have a functioning government that can pass legislation and we're up and running. If they can't build a coalition in those first few weeks, 
then the opportunity goes to the opposition candidate. Or, alternatively, the Knesset can vote to dissolve itself and force new elections to take place. Now, this scenario had never happened before in Israeli history until 2019, when it happened to Netanyahu. In elections held in April that year, Netanyahu failed to form a governing coalition, getting him 61 seats. But rather than let his opponent, Benny Gantz, try to form a coalition, the Knesset dissolved itself, requiring new elections. Again, a first in Israeli history. But the second try didn't work either. No one could form a governing coalition, and so a third election was held in March of 2020. This one held the possibility of working out. Benny Gantz still led the opposition party to Netanyahu, but at the last minute he agreed to join forces with Likud in a national unity government. He cited the emergency posed by the COVID-19 pandemic. The deal was that Netanyahu would serve as prime minister for a year and a half and then hand things off to Gantz. No one actually believed that Netanyahu would allow this. And sure enough, the government again fell apart at the end of the year, requiring a fourth election. That fourth election was held in March 2021. Again, Netanyahu failed to form a governing coalition, but this time, the opportunity to form a government was given to his opponents, and they succeeded by a hair's breadth. And on June 13th, just about 10 days ago, the new government was sworn in with Naftali Bennett as prime minister. Okay, so what happened? And why? And who are the big new players to know? Let's take a look. So these last four elections in the past two years have really been about getting Netanyahu out of power. He has so poisoned the political well in Israel that even his former allies turned against him. The problem was that the opposition was always too divided. Even though the right, center, and left all wanted Netanyahu out, they couldn't work together long enough to form a coalition. But this time around, that changed. And the person who engineered that change is Yair Lapid, the leader of the Yesh Atid party which is a centrist party. Yair Lapid is a native Israeli, a left-wing secular Jew born into a distinguished family. His father was a well-known journalist and politician. His mother is a popular author. Lapid also became a famous journalist and writer. He was basically Israel's Anderson Cooper, hosting one of the most popular TV shows in the country. Until 2012, when he decided to leave journalism and enter politics, that's when he founded the Yesh Atid party. So Yair Lapid took a centrist stand on many issues. He supports the two-state solution to the conflict, in which the Palestinians would have a state independent of Israel. He famously articulated the perspective of probably most Israelis when he said that Israel wasn't interested in a happy marriage with the Palestinians, but instead a divorce that they can all live with. Yesh Atid has also supported reducing the rabbinate's power over public policy, allowing for things like civil marriage outside the rabbis and for some forms of public transportation on Shabbat. He was a big critic of Netanyahu's relationship with the United States as too one-sided in favor of the Republican Party. In short, Yair Lapid united his moderate views with his immense popularity to make his new party a political force to be reckoned with. In the 2013 elections, Yesh Atid did smashingly well. It became the second largest party in the Knesset, which catapulted Yair Lapid into one of the most influential politicians in Israel. Netanyahu appointed him Minister of Finance. 
Now, if there's one thing that Netanyahu hates, it's a potential political rival. So just a year after appointing Lapid finance minister, Netanyahu sacked him. Officially, he said it was because he wouldn't tolerate such high-ranking cabinet officials criticizing the very government they were serving. But the real reason was that Netanyahu was hoping to derail Lapid's political rise. Instead, he turned Yair Lapid into one of the main leaders of the opposition. And so in this last election, this fourth one, back in March, Yeshatid once again came in second place. Netanyahu's Likud party got 30 seats, the most, which is why he got to try to form a coalition government. Yair Lapid's Yeshatid party got 17 seats. But when Netanyahu couldn't form a coalition of 61 votes, Lapid was given the opportunity to try. Israeli politics went into overdrive. Lapid was determined to coalesce everyone opposed to Netanyahu into a single block of 61 votes who could kick Netanyahu out. To do that, he would have to bring together the left wing, who hated Netanyahu and everything he stood for, to the center, who hated Netanyahu and some of the things he stood for, to the right, who hated Netanyahu but loved most of the things Netanyahu stood for. It seemed impossible. But nothing makes new friends like a shared enemy, and Yair Lapid found it in the person of Naftali Bennett. Naftali Bennett is a pretty interesting character. He's young, 49 years old. His parents were Americans from San Francisco who were inspired by Israel's victory in the Six-Day War to move there a month later. Bennett is a religious Jew. He belongs to the modern Orthodox movement. He had a short but very distinguished military career. He served in one of Israel's most elite military units, the Sayeret Matkal, Israel's version of the Navy SEALs, more or less. After his service, he became a tech entrepreneur. He built a personal fortune of a couple hundred million dollars when he sold some of his companies in the space of just a few years. So this is not a guy lacking in either speed or ambition. In 2006, Bennett decided to go into politics. He became Netanyahu's chief of staff, his right-hand man, at a time when Netanyahu was the leader of the Likud party, which was then in opposition to a left-wing government. Ah, how the plot thickens. Now, Likud is right-wing, Netanyahu is right-wing, but Bennett is ultra-super right-wing. He loves to brag that he's more to the right than Netanyahu. Indeed, that Netanyahu doesn't ever go far enough, that he's all talk and promises and no action. Bennett is completely opposed to a Palestinian state. He wants Israel to just take over the entire West Bank. Bennett was the leader of a major organization that advocates for more Israeli settlements in the West Bank. So it's not much of a stretch to call Bennett an ultra-nationalist, a religious right-winger who wholeheartedly supports Israeli settlements. So in 2006, Bennett and Netanyahu were thick as thieves. Two years later, they had some kind of personal falling out, and Bennett was fired. But he stayed in right-wing politics. Two years after that, in 2010, Prime Minister Netanyahu ordered a freeze on settlement construction in the West Bank, and Bennett opposed him. From then on, Bennett became a key figure on the ultra-right, often together with another far-right activist, a woman named Ayelet Shaked. She had also worked under Netanyahu, and together, Bennett and Shaked were a thorn in Netanyahu's right flank. The two took over a prominent right-wing religious party called Jewish Home and set out to score political victories. Like Yair Lapid's Yeshatid party, the Jewish Home party did extremely well in the 2013 elections. 
So the two teamed up, and Bennett, like Lapid, was given a prominent political post by Netanyahu. But the prime minister hated him. Over the next several years, Bennett's party got less and less popular. And that should have tanked Bennett's fledgling political career, but he kept finding ways to stay politically essential to Netanyahu. So even though Netanyahu hated him personally, Bennett mostly remained in government in various ministerial positions. In 2019, he bolted from the Jewish Home Party to create another right-wing party called Yamina, or the New Right. These last two years, through these crazy four elections, Bennett and Netanyahu have been engaged in a delicate boxing match, dancing warily around each other, coming in for quick jabs, and occasionally being forced to embrace before getting yanked apart again. And remember, all of this is happening on the right. These are Netanyahu's former allies coming after him. Not because they disagree with his politics, but because they want him gone. Netanyahu made too many promises and broke all of them, so no one believes him anymore. You combine that with the extraordinary ambitions of people like Naftali Bennett, and suddenly you had this opening in 2019 to toss Netanyahu out. The problem was that there were just too many egos from across the political spectrum. Yair Lapid, Benny Gantz, Naftali Bennett, and several others, they all wanted to be prime minister so they had a tough time working together. Netanyahu kept squeezing out the wins. All this came to a head in the last few weeks. In this last election, in March, Yair Lapid's Yeshatid party won 17 seats in the Knesset. Yet again, coming in second place after Likud, Netanyahu's party, which won 30. Bennett came in fifth place in that election. His Yamina, New Right Party, only got seven Knesset seats, which represented just 6% of the total vote in Israel. Here we are, in America, complaining about the Electoral College all the time, and the current Prime Minister of Israel was elected with only 6% of the country's votes. What happened is that everyone opposed to Netanyahu finally realized they could only beat him by working together. Yair Lapid stretched together an extraordinary coalition to get those 61 seats. 25 seats came from center parties, 19 seats from the right, 13 seats from the left, and 4 seats from a religious Muslim party called Ra'am. By all rights, it should have been Yair Lapid in the prime minister's seat right now, but he cut a deal with Bennett to bring Yamina on board and get those crucial seats from the right. Bennett would get to be prime minister starting now, Lapid will be the alternate prime minister, and the agreement is that they'll rotate in 2023. Israel's 36th government in 73 years was sworn in on June 13th. Netanyahu is out, and Israel now has its most diverse government in its history. Naftali Bennett is the first religious prime minister. All the rest have been secular. There are 27 ministers who form the core of the government. There are nine women, the most ever. Six ministers are religious Jews. Six are immigrants, one is gay, the youngest is 37, the oldest is 74, two have disabilities, one is Druze, a small religious sect that's separate from Judaism and Islam, and incredibly, one minister is a Muslim Arab, a religious Muslim Arab, Mansour Abbas, who is now Deputy Minister of Arab Affairs. For the first time ever, an Arab party is represented in Israel's coalition government, Arab Israelis finally have a big seat at the table. And it's already paying off in promises from the new government to devote more resources to the Arab community, 
like in housing, health, and education. This holds great promise for the future of Israeli politics on the left and center. Now that Jews and Arabs have broken the taboo of cooperating together in government, they can team up together in the future against the right wing instead of, historically, going it alone. So get this. The Jewish state is now the only non-Muslim country in the world with an Islamic party in power. It's incredibly exciting. So what does all this mean as far as major changes in Israel? The answer is probably not much. And that is by design. The parties have all agreed to pursue only those policies which intersect their interests, not divide them. Otherwise, how can the far-right ultra-nationalist Naftali Bennett work in government with a religious Muslim party? It's like a game theorist's ultimate dream. The only way they all get what they want is by not getting all that they want. So although lots of commentators have expressed deep concerns about Bennett, he is, after all, much more right-wing than Netanyahu, Bennett isn't going to be able to pursue things like annexing the West Bank. He knows that if he pursues extremist policies, he'll lose the support of his coalition partners and therefore the prime ministership. As Bennett said in his speech before the Knesset, what we agree on we'll take forward, what we differ on we'll put aside for now. As the journalist Yair Rosenberg put it, this is Yair Lapid's coalition and everyone else is just living in it. So the best case scenario here is that this government succeeds merely by continuing to exist. And there's plenty to do. Twelve years of Netanyahu's rule has revealed the importance of strengthening Israel's democratic institutions. Things like judicial system reforms, term limits perhaps, and unexpectedly who's allowed to live in the prime minister's house. Tightening rules to prevent the kinds of corruption that Netanyahu was on trial for, and for which, now that he's out of power, he may actually find himself in jail for at some point. There is the post-COVID economy and opening the country back up to trade and tourism and of reinvigorating neglected sectors like housing and infrastructure. And there is passing a budget, which Israel has done without for two years because Netanyahu was too focused on winning elections. But of course, there is the former prime minister looming over all this. He has vowed that this will be the shortest government in Israeli history, quickly toppled and replaced by himself. Although he is not now prime minister, he is still a member of the Knesset, still the leader of the Likud party, and still the leader of the opposition. His party won dramatically more votes than anyone else this past election. So do not, whatever you do, do not count him out. There's much to say about the legacy of Benjamin Netanyahu, which may well not be over yet. Israel's longest-serving prime minister was also one of its most impactful, and in many positive ways. When it comes to his governing, Netanyahu has had some spectacular achievements in the arenas of the economy, diplomacy, and security. Back when he was minister of finance in the early 2000s, Netanyahu laid the groundwork for Israel's ability to jump on the tech bandwagon, an effort which he championed to the max when he became prime minister in 2009. It really is thanks in a large way to his leadership that Israel has become an international powerhouse in the tech space over the last two years, an enormously important development that has helped the country not just weather the major economic storms over the last dozen years, but prosper. Although Netanyahu took a lot of blame for mishandling the early part of the COVID pandemic, he later rallied Israel around the vaccine campaign, putting the country light years ahead of just about everyone else in the world. 
for which, again, he deserves much credit. On security, Netanyahu has kept Israel out of a major war for the longest stretch in its history, since 2006. Yes, there has been several short wars with Hamas and Gaza, but nothing on the scale of Israel's previous wars. That's no small feat, and believe me, Israelis are not unaware. Here, too, Netanyahu deserves a lot of credit for maintaining Israel's security without allowing any conflict to ignite into prolonged open warfare. Netanyahu has also done more than probably anyone in the world to bring to light Iran's nefarious behavior, support for terrorism, and quest for nuclear weapons. And in the realm of diplomacy, Netanyahu has achieved that rarest of accomplishments, amongst many others, peace with an Arab country. In 73 years, Israel had achieved peace with only two, Egypt in 1979 and Jordan in 1996. And then in 2020, in one fell swoop, Netanyahu brought about a peace deal with both the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. And two more Muslim countries, Sudan and Morocco, agreed to normalize their diplomatic relations with Israel. It was, without a doubt or reservation, an extraordinary, historic accomplishment. Had Netanyahu simply achieved all these things, he would go down as one of the most admired leaders in Israeli history, for Israelis and Jews around the world. Instead, he chose to sow hatred and division in Israeli society like no other prime minister before him. Believing himself to be Israel's Winston Churchill, the only man capable of keeping the West safe from an onslaught of enemies, Netanyahu is obsessed with his own power. No bar is too low to retain power, which is why he dragged Israel through four elections, discredited its democratic and judicial institutions to try to stop his corruption trial, which didn't work, and poisoned the body politic by turning Israelis against one another. He appealed to the worst instincts of his right-wing nationalist base, elevating fanatics who would normally be on the fringes of society into positions of power and influence. He rallied his base by taunting them that Arab citizens were showing up at the polls, a tactic of division that worked dramatically well. But he didn't care, so long as he won. With Israel's single most important ally, the United States, Netanyahu alienated the Democratic Party and shunted aside the concerns of Jewish Americans in favor of the support from right-wing evangelicals and the Republican Party. It was an incredibly dangerous move that threatened to turn Israel into a partisan issue, which we're seeing now as prominent figures on the left attack Israel more openly than ever before. As the Knesset carried out its vote for the new government, Netanyahu glowered behind his face mask, refusing to vacate the prime minister's seat until the speaker of the Knesset insisted that he had to move to the opposition's side. He allowed his right-wing allies to scream and heckle, shamefully disrupting the proceedings of the duly elected democratic government in what was a national embarrassment. Netanyahu insists that this election was not just fraudulent, but the single greatest fraud in the history of democracies. Now, it's not Donald Trump. He doesn't mean that the vote was rigged. What he means is that Naftali Bennett perpetrated a lie against the Israeli people in passing himself off as a moderate who can lead what Netanyahu slanders as a radical left-wing coalition. That lie, therefore, means the election must be illegitimate. With no act too petty, Netanyahu refused the customary one-on-one -on -one sit-down between the outgoing prime minister and the incoming leader. And, of course, he still won't leave the official residence. As the scholar Daniel Gordas writes, We ought not lose sight of the fact that Benjamin Netanyahu was once a great man, 
a person who devoted his entire life to the service of the Jewish people. But now, says Gordas, it's a Greek tragedy, for the greatness is gone. Perhaps in time, Netanyahu will remake himself as the elder statesman he could have been. But it seems unlikely, as he fights like mad to exploit Israel's divisions to return to power by any means possible. In the meantime, Israel continues to build on his achievements. Yair Lapid heads to the United Arab Emirates as Israel's foreign minister, the first for such a high-ranking official. The country continues its post-COVID recovery. There was a brief flare-up with Hamas a few days ago, but no rockets were fired and no casualties incurred on either side. So we'll see what happens. Will June 2021 mark a political turning point in Israel's history, or another bump on the road for Netanyahu, who has already been twice out of power and made it to the prime ministership both times? Naftali Bennett announced that he secured an agreement with Netanyahu to end the siege of Balfour on July 10th. This was not the first promise Benjamin Netanyahu ever made. Let's see if he keeps it. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, jewadono.com, and my email is jewadonopodcast at gmail.com. I'll be back soon with more episodes on ancient history with regular season six. In the meantime, thanks again for listening. Lahitraut. See you later. Thank you.